Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Wednesday, the 5th of May. I'm Tom Tilly, and let me ask you a question. Of all the cars sold in Australia each year, what percentage do you think are electric vehicles? Well, I'll give you a hint. It is not an impressive number. I think they're the the good thing we've got to embrace for many reasons. You know, five, ten years, I think we will see a major shift in our attitude, I hope, and our use. Yes, and a major shift is needed. On today's briefing, the roadblocks that could strangle the uptake of electric vehicles even further in Australia. Uh, Before that, today's big headlines with Katrina Blowers. Hello, Tom. Well, Australian cricketers in India are in limbo after the Indian Premier League was postponed because of COVID. Yeah, this situation's getting quite messy in India. The cricket authorities there decided to stop play in the league last night after COVID infiltrated the biosecurity bubble of the tournament with players in three separate teams testing positive. Here's Aussie star Pat Cummins, who's playing for the Kolkata team. I'm hearing postponement, cancellation, maybe moving to Mumbai. Yeah, it seems to be changing every couple of minutes now. Um, but yeah, it's. I think it's clear it's, there's a couple of cases in a few different teams. Yeah, no one knows what's going to happen from here. And there's so much speculation around that the tournament might be continued in Dubai or might be delayed even until later in the year. But several Aussie stars have already left the country for the Maldives. And why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, beautiful place to go. Um, Cricket Australia says it won't be trying to secure exemptions for Australian players stuck there. Uh, in a statement, Cricket Australia... And the Australian Cricketers Association said they respect the government's decision to stop travel between Australia and India and won't be seeking special treatment for players and staff. Yeah, what do you make of the situation? I think it's important that they had to come out and say that they weren't going to uh, be expecting any special treatment, don't you? Because Mm. um, there's already, uh, I think, a lot of distaste about, well, how can you be seeing people dying in the streets on the one hand and still have this tournament going ahead on the other? Yeah, and I think it was the two players that came back uh, via third-party countries that seemed to spark this reaction from the government because... It was soon after that that we heard about these biosecurity laws being enacted. Mm. Well, the Prime Minister is downplaying the government's threat to fine and imprison any Australians who make it back from India. I think the likelihood of anything like that occurring is pretty much zero. The Prime Minister speaking yesterday, uh, and the government's threatened any citizens who arrive back from India during this pause period with fines of up to $66,000 and five years in prison. Yeah, it's um, certainly put them under a lot of heat from mm. a lot of people, including the president of the Australian Medical Association, Dr Omar Korshid, who says those measures are an overreach and has called on repatriation flights to resume immediately. Chartering flights, using our defence force if necessary, to bring the most vulnerable of the Australians in India home. Yeah, and it's not just cricketers speaking out like Michael Slater, who slammed the Prime Minister over this, but even uh, members of his own government, including Senator Matt Canavan, have already broken ranks to criticise the ban. We've spoken about him a few times, haven't we, on, on this podcast, <laughs> Katrina? He really speaks his mind. He's like a thorn in the side for the Prime Minister at the moment. And, um, you know, the Prime Minister's comments yesterday, the opposition came out and said, well, what's the point of even having these tough penalties if you're going to come out and then say, look, it's pretty much a zero chance of us even enforcing them? Yeah, it seems that this overreach by the government has created more problems than it solves. I think a lot of Australians, and I think Matt Canavan, and I guess the reason we end up talking about him is he does take an interesting read on, on middle Australia and where they're at on these kind of issues or middle Queensland. 
But I think a lot of Australians supported the pause on the travel from India. There was a lot of concern about uh, cases in our hotel quarantine mm. facilities. But to go that one step further and threaten jail time uh, and massive fines seems to be out of step with most people's expectations of what's reasonable. And I think too, if this is doing anything, it's making that conversation about what is hotel quarantine going forward and how can we make it more applicable to people in all kinds of different circumstances. We needed to have that conversation. So hopefully that'll push that forward even further. Yeah. And I think if the government do um, you know, really expand the capacity of, of Howard Springs and make solid plans to get people back once yeah. this pause ends, it will all make sense. Um, but at the moment, there's a lot of heat coming their way. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill and Melinda Gates have already decided how they were going to divide up their assets, apparently, and property before announcing their divorce yesterday. US media is reporting the couple had agreed on a separation contract to divvy up their estate before going public with their news. They were together for 27 years, which is not an insignificant amount of time. They uh, announced their um, divorce on Twitter yesterday. Gosh, aren't we just in 2021 now? Saying they could no longer grow together as a couple. Yeah, what did you make of that phrase? I found that a little strange. I mean, if you've been together that long, you've raised three kids. It's a it's a pretty high bar to continue to keep expecting to grow together. Aren't you just sort of surviving <laughs> by that point as a couple? Love is dead. <laughs> I don't know. Just keeping your head above water. Look, the pair has already started hiring lawyers. They've filed divorce papers at a Seattle court and they've described their marriage as irretrievably broken. Yeah, that's another another strong quote there, irretrievably broken. Um, I actually got to interview Melinda Gates two years ago on Triple J. Um, That's amazing. It was a really good interview opportunity. She put out her book and we got the only Australian radio interview. So I got... Hmm half an hour with Melinda Gates and we addressed all kinds of topics like the great work that they've done together with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm doing so much great work in developing countries and in America as well, um, working on education there. And um, I did get to ask her about their relationship. Here's what she told me about it. He wasn't used to sharing power or he wasn't used to even understanding that when he walks in the room or sits down at a table, everybody assumes he's the smartest person in the room. That's not always true. So he had to learn to make room for me. I love that. That's not always true. You know, they got together on their first date. She beat him at a maths competition. And that's when I think he saw her in a whole new light. Yeah. Isn't it interesting hearing those comments from her now? Like she made them two years ago in the context of them still being together. She's obviously talking about the way she kind of had to um, train him to understand the space that he would take up in a room because he often was the the smartest and most successful person in any room he walked into. Um, But he had to sort of, I guess, stop and and learn to listen so that he wasn't dominating anywhere he went. Um, I'll I'll play you another grape, Katrina, just that um, Melinda Gates expanding on that situation that she had to sort of massage in her relationship with Bill. If it came up in a dinner where I felt like he talked over me, even if it was inadvertent, I might let it go during the dinner. Let's say it's a small dinner party, Mm. but there's no way I was going to let that go by the time we got home. Sometimes I was heated in the way I took them on. (gasps) Gosh, she was so honest with you. Mm. Yeah, she was really spilling it, wasn't she? Like they just, (laughs) those, those grabs didn't sound that harsh at the time, but now they do, don't they? 
They definitely do. And I think, you know, like he he is such an incredibly smart, motivated, driven person and has big ideas that no one else has. I think it would be tough to be in a relationship with someone like that. Yeah, well, she's not going to be talked over anymore. I guess there'll be lawyers involved. (laughs) But how funny are all the memes that are coming out about, you know, sliding into Bill Gates' DMs? And I was just doing a Google search before and the second most searched thing on Google at the moment is how do I contact Bill Wow. (laughs) And the federal government have announced a new agency to provide relief to communities affected by natural disasters. Yeah, that National Recovery and Resilience Agency was established in the wake of the Bushfire Royal Commission and it'll be mostly about providing help in crisis but also providing funds for disaster mitigation. Yeah, I guess this was a big issue that came up out of the bushfires, the the tricky dynamic between the federal government and the state governments and all their different agencies. I think it's interesting it's been announced now, though, and not um, during the budget. So maybe they're making room in the budget for some really exciting, big announcements. I can hardly wait. Well, yeah, this is how it happens. They they trickle you with announcements here or there in the lead up to the budget, and then they save their big, I don't know what it, <laughs> what you call it. <laughs> Blockbuster? I know, yeah, I know what you call it in a music context. You save, you know, the banger, the hits for the end of the, the set. Bangers. Yeah. The budget bangers. <laughs> budget bangers. So... <laughs> We'll bring you all of the coverage on the budget when it happens uh, next week. That'll come out on Tuesday night. So if you are fascinated by federal government budgets, Wednesday's Mm. episode next week will be one for you. All right, Katrina, we'll um, speak to you tomorrow on the podcast when we talk about kangaroo ligaments potentially (laughs) providing the solution for human evolution's weakest link. But right now, Annika Smethurst is about to join us as we talk about electric cars. Tom, what percentage of new cars sold in Australia do you think are electric vehicles these days? Oh, I'm seeing a few more of them around, like we're still pretty slow. I would guess somewhere up to around 5%. That would be awesome if we could get there. Look, it's actually only 0.7%. Now, that's bad. (laughs) Sorry, 0.7% of new car sales are electric vehicles? Yeah, and now that's bad, right? Yes. you got to compare us to somewhere like... Norway. Now, they're really good at it. The Scandinavians love electrical vehicles. Over there, 54% of new cars sold are electric. So we're not doing well at all. Wow. That's unbelievable. 0.7 compared to 54%. Yeah. So look, if we want to get serious about cutting emissions, we need to do something about this because transport makes up 18% of our greenhouse gas pollution in Australia, which is more than the global average and it's still going up. So we need to get on top of this. Yeah, so obviously switching to electric vehicles um, that are powered by electricity, ideally renewables, is one way to do that. But one of the many roadblocks, pun intended, uh, is government policy, particularly tax. Uh, I guess it's a difficult one for the government, Annika. Yeah, so the government will actually be out of pocket if we switch. And that's because when you go to the Bowser and you buy fuel, we pay a pretty high tax. It's a rate of 42.7 cents per litre for petrol and 13.9 cents per litre for gas. And that money helps the governments pay for roads and build new transport infrastructure. And if we switch... They don't get that money. Right. So is this the reason why the federal government was 
waging that campaign that electric cars would be a, a war on the weekend and, and those kind of statements in the last federal election? Or is this more of a state government thing? This tax is a federal government tax and that's definitely one of the reasons. I also think one of the reasons was because Labor had quite an ambitious policy and they wanted to be an opposition on it. But it's weird. The federal government usually take this tax, but now state governments are actually looking at ways to tax electric vehicles. And the nine newspapers are reporting this morning that New South Wales is debating a range of measures, including subsidising car parks, waiving stamp duty, giving access for electric cars in transit lanes. Uh, They're also considering a distance-based tax, but the Transport Minister is arguing that shouldn't happen until electric vehicles make up 40 to 50% of the car market. We know governments love taxes, and this is a new area, but it really raises the question, what happens if I drive from Melbourne to Sydney? Which state government do I pay my tax to? Yeah, and what's it going to do to our overall sales of electric vehicles? It sounds like we don't need any more impediments than we already have. No. Australia already has one of the worst uptakes, as we've said, for electric vehicles. So, for example, last year in Germany and France, they both grew their stock of electric vehicles by more than 200%. Now, in Australia, we sold fewer than 7,000 electric vehicles in 2020, representing just a 3% jump from the year before. Wow. So not only are we behind, we're falling further behind as some of those countries increase their fleets by even more. So it raises today's briefing question, why are we so slow on our transition to electric vehicles? And what's the government doing in this space? Are they going to make it harder or easier? Jay Whitehead is a transport expert from the University of Queensland and he's been quite critical of our government's approach. Jake, thanks for joining us. Why are Australians so opposed to driving electric cars compared to the rest of the world? Australians are keen to kick our dirty habit on foreign imported oil and switch to Australian-made energy. Electric vehicles will enable us to do that. But the real challenge at the moment is we just don't get the supply into the Australian market. And that's principally because of um, the, the pretty weak policies we see on electric vehicles in Australia. One of the reasons governments might not be keen for us to swap to electric vehicles too quickly is that they get tax from every litre of petrol we buy. So how much money does that actually generate for the governments and have they worked out a way to make money yet from electric vehicles? For every litre of petrol that's sold, uh, about 40 cents is collected in tax that goes to the government. There's no direct link between this money and looking after the transport network. It can be used anywhere in the tax system. Because we buy imported foreign fuel, tens of billions of dollars is flowing out of the country to foreign oil companies to power all of our transport systems. So we've got to take that broader perspective and understand that by switching to electric vehicles, we'll actually be shifting tens of billions of dollars into the local economy, supporting Australian energy and Australian energy jobs, as well as freeing up um, money to be spent elsewhere in our economy. So what's the right way to solve this tax problem? If it's not Um, replacing a petrol-based tax with an electric vehicle tax, how should they go about replacing that revenue or should they look at it completely differently given that driving electric cars is supposed to be better for the environment so there's that broader payoff? Actually, the the most significant cost that we have in the transport system at the moment is road congestion. And that is the the major cost of transport that we should be looking to actually target and manage. And that's being called congestion pricing. So 
taxing those that drive through the inner city areas in the peak periods of the day, that would be a much more efficient way of raising uh, tax revenue and not scapegoating the very technology that we need in electric vehicles to transition to a to a net zero economy. That would also avoid one of the big issues with a tax like what Victoria is proposing, which would see people in regional areas pay more tax effectively because they're going to drive further. So why are we even looking at it from a different state perspective? Isn't this something the federal government should really have a policy area over? Because if I drive from here to Adelaide, which government do I pay tax to? This approach that Victoria is taking, uh, again, is is short-sighted for many reasons, but one of those factors is, yeah, we need a national approach to this issue. I would challenge the Victorian government on their approach. It's going to be very challenging for them to justify charging people uh, for driving outside their state. And the system that they're going to have to put in place uh, to track people uh, would seem to be, you know, starting to raise some issues around privacy that uh, I don't think everyone has quite become aware of in terms of what is on the table. So, Jake, you've outlined that this Victorian tax is flawed on a number of levels, but you also acknowledge that it has sort of come about in a a vacuum of leadership on electric vehicles from the federal government. I mean, the last time I heard them really talking about electric vehicles, they were warning me that it might ruin my weekend, that Labor was attacking my weekend in the last federal election. What is the position you would like to see the federal government take? Um, How much have they changed their tune since the 2019 election and what should they be doing? Yeah, so on the on the first point, I must say that since you know I'm, I've been lucky enough to have uh, two different electric vehicles in my household over, over the past five years, and every single weekend has been completely ruined. You know, it's been <laughs> it's just just really been a, a drain on my lifestyle. So it's quite disappointing what what occurred in the lead up to the last federal election. I'm hopeful uh, that we can have a bit more of a mature dialogue uh, this time around. This is much broader than just an environmental issue. And I think that's where they've got stuck a little bit in their kind of ideology world of of having EVs associated as just a kind of green um, idea and not recognising this is something going on right across the world, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum. And the federal LMP party is the global outlier in terms of its approach. So if the federal government does nothing, or worse still, if we get state taxes introduced, how far behind the rest of the world are we going to be in terms of uptake? If we just had business as usual, uh, we would probably remain five to eight years behind comparable countries. If these other uh, taxes come into place or other kind of negative policies, we'll be more than 10 years behind What this effectively means is that every Australian household, every Australian business is going to be paying much more for their transport fuel over the next 10, 20, 30 years because of the inaction of Australian governments. And I think politicians have to answer to that. Why should everyone continue to have to pay $1.40, $1.50, $1.60 per litre in foreign fuel Mm. when they could be having an electric vehicle paying the equivalent of 20 to 30 cents per litre? That was Jake Whitehead from the University of Queensland uh, to find out, I guess, more about what's going on in the minds of Australian drivers and, you know, what's behind this slow transition. We have David Brown um, adding to the conversation. He's the former president of the Australian Institute for Traffic Planning and Management. David, why do you think we're so far behind on this? 
Oh, we said very poorly. I think we're seen as being very backward almost in the way in which we're approaching this in what it has benefits uh, and has potential for jobs and growth and new technologies. We're just not even embracing those benefits as well. I'll be devil's advocate here, though. Some of the places that have had really good take-up, like Scandinavia, they're really different places to Australia. So we've got those long distances. We really rely on road freight. Is it even practical that we would have a big fleet of electric vehicles here? We need to move out of a a one-dimensional view of our task. And the the idea that, oh, we're all going to travel long distances in every car is not the reality. The average car does less than 300 kilometres a week. A lot of those trips are incredibly short. It's a psychological thing as much as anything. I think that's an important part that we've got to embrace. It's not an all or nothing. So, David, you describe it almost as a, a psychological or a, or a set of cultural barriers that are stopping us from moving forward here rather than necessarily technological or policy. The old saying is you've got to think globally and act locally. I think you've got to think locally. The notion as though it's uh, electric vehicles are this baddie we've got to cope with, they're actually a good opportunity. Electric, be, be it powered by batteries or hydrogen or, or any other alternative, can be to our great benefit. So practically, how far can you go before they need charging? And do we even have enough charging stations on our roads? Oh, no, we, we need to progress in that area. But they're getting much better. We have this notion that, you know, you're going to run out after a very short distance. It's getting much better. Some of those vehicles has about 480 kilometres charge. You could last a week, you know, in mm. some households as two weeks between charges. I wouldn't recommend that, but just touching it up, you know, every now and again, more than having to be significantly uh, put out by doing it, it's now represents, uh, I think, a great opportunity. David, what sort of car do you drive? Well, I drive a different car each week. So we, we <laughs> test cars So in that regard. But we have a little small runabout, but it's an old one, but we use very minimally. It would be ideal for an electric car. But, you know, we've got to recognise an electric car's idea at the moment. There's no question. Look, Australia has this image as though they're the baddie we've got to endure. I think they're the, the good thing we've got to embrace for, for many reasons. For, you know, five, ten years, uh, I think we will see a major shift in our attitude, I hope, and our use. That was David Brown, the former president of the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management. Now, Tom, we criticise, but do you drive an electric car? Not yet. I'm actually, though, kind of quite a greenie on cars. I went for 13 years recently without a car and I just rode my bike and got public transport. Recently, we moved a bit further away from the city and um, we needed a car. So I got a car. It's a small four-cylinder car, but I want my next car to be an electric vehicle. So we're going to, if I have my way, hang on to this um, small petrol-powered car as long as we need to so that the next purchase is an electric car. Ideally, one of those massive, sexy Teslas. (laughs) We're a bit in the same position, actually, looking at getting a new car. They aren't necessarily as cheap as some of the other models at the moment, and there's not as much choice. But that is changing, and especially if you want a big car. You know, Australians love their SUVs. Slowly but surely, we are finding new options. So I think I'm the same. It might not be my next car, but it'll definitely be the one after that. 
listener.